Hello, listeners. My name's Chris. My name's David. And we are the Religious Studies Project. Where the days are getting lighter here in the northern hemisphere. It's 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 wonderful. I, I already feel like it's the summer. <laughs> I realize that uh, we're recording this a little bit in advance of it going out. We could be in the middle of blizzard conditions in Edinburgh um, in January. Who knows? But welcome. Uh, this week's interview uh, has been recorded by David, speaking with Naomi Goldenberg. It's her second uh, podcast appearance. Um, she was in our first year speaking to Jonathan Tuckett about religion as vestigial states. And she spoke with David in Belfast in September about religion as a tactic of governance, um, something that is of critical interest to the RSP. Take it away, David. We're in Belfast at the BASR Conference 2018, and I am privileged to be joined today by our keynote uh, speaker from last night, Naomi Goldenberg of the University of Ottawa. Welcome to the Religious Studies Project, a return visit, Naomi. <laughs> Thank you. We're going to pick up where the keynote started last night for everybody who couldn't be here for what was an excellent session. I'm thinking of, of, of where to start our conversation today. Then. Um, so the, the, the idea was, as I understood it, the idea of religion as a separate sphere, separate categories projected onto the past for strategic purposes. Tell us what you mean by that, and especially this idea of strategic purposes as a tactic. What are we talking about here? Religion is a modern category, the way I see it. Uh, the, not just the way I see it, the way many scholars see it. And not just the way we see it. It can be demonstrated that the, the term as meaning some kind of special, separate sphere of human activity is a very, very recent idea. I'll say, I'll say maybe try to explain this in terms of probably the most effective sentence that I've ever come across to explain it, uh, is that there is no religion in the Bible. And last night I began with a passage from Deuteronomy to illustrate that, that you might have, you do have God in the Bible, you have all kinds of people that we identify with the category of religion now. But all of these figures were involved in government, not in anything separate that we could uh, hive off and, and call religion. Uh, God was some kind of, uh, conceived of some kind of uh, monarch, some kind of director, uh, someone who uh, human beings could claim to speak for. But but we, we get God as a principle of government. Now, of course, government is a, a modern term as well, so I, I speak about governance uh, with lots of different words. You can say ruling authority, you could say commanding a polity. Uh, so it's a very loose concept of, uh, of governance that, uh, I'm using. But this, uh, this governance was, uh, we might say now theocratic. You don't get something separate. Clergy, that's another modern term projected onto the past, were involved with ceremonies of government. And anything that gets called religion, translated as religion in various ancient texts, tends to mean ceremonies 
that are related to governance. Okay, so if that's accepted, then when the modern category of religion emerges, and it emerges in fits and starts in different places in different times, slightly different times in different ways, it emerges as a way for governments to manage displaced populations, according to the theory mm. I'm putting forward. And... um it's a struggle of institutions, usually always, actually, between males who were running various institutions. And the loser uh, institution evolves as a religion or can evolve as a religion instead of being eliminated completely, instead of the polity being banished or uh, or uh, murdered. Uh, so you have a category that allows for a quasi-government within a larger government and then that uh, quasi-government uh, derives some sort of authority from seeing itself, or perhaps truly, being a government of something in the past. And the strength of that vestigial government that displaced those displaced people, that, those displ- that displaced sovereignty gets to fit into the category of religion, and with that, the state grants certain status. The vestigial group is denied certain forms of violence, martial violence, police violence, violence in waiting, the violence needed to enforce court decisions. The mystification of that vestigial government occurs because of the connection with something in the past or with the narrated idea of a government that existed in the past. The sense of religion as a strategy is that it's a strategy of dominant governments to manage this displaced or marginalized population. However, it can also be a strategy for the displaced population to claim the category, claim the mystification that surrounds the category, and put pressure on the dominant government for more rights. So it's a double kind of strategy going on. Right, yeah. There was a great line you used in the keynote, it's religions as resting once in future governments. Restive. Restive, Restive. right, okay. Restive Restive once in future governments. Yeah, uh, I like that phrase, once in future, sort of the once in future prince. It's uh, a sense of the government looking, uh, considering itself to have been something... uh, more dominant in the past and something that will be dominant in the future. So you get that double uh, sense of time going on and always ambitious, Mm -hmm. even though sometimes there could be long periods when you don't see the ambition to aggrandize, to get more and more power, to have more and more spheres to be controlled. When uh, we had a, it wasn't our conversation, but the previous religious studies project uh, conversation when we talked about religion as vestigial states, this seems to build a little bit on that, or my sort of sense of religion as vestigial states was more of this group of people who consider themselves a sort of uh, restive once in future government. I don't think they... Often they don't consciously think of not consciously, that but yeah. that's the yeah, that's yeah, the, right. the, yeah. the way it's working. But this seems to broaden it out and and actually look at it the other way around as well. In the way that this can be something that's very useful for the majority state. Oh yes, very useful because the majority state 
can claim sometimes, depending on the relationships with vestigial one, that it is supported by the vestigial older government, more mystified government. Mm -hmm. And we see that in the United States with slogans such as in God we trust, uh, with having clergy open up uh, governmental ceremonies, the uh, closeness of government in the church in so many places. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and mm-hmm. literally in the UK, you know. <laughs> oh, oh, very literally, <laughs> literally in the UK. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, and so, you know, um, the mystification, obviously, I mean, we, we have a, if, if you want to listen to our interview with Tim Fitzgerald on mystification, if you're unclear on that, that basically that this is a technique by which power relations are obscured and concealed. And also the the nature of something, such as religion as a a form of government, a form of rules, a form of of law, regulation, ritual, ceremony, uh, that is very like government, like mm-hmm. what we're considering government, is obscured by the mystification. So that's not seen. It's supposed to be something mysterious. Mm. Uh, there, there was something that immediately struck me during this conversation. It, it's always a, um, been of interest to me. We were talking about the fact that p- people who study religions in the classical world, for instance, don't really talk to RS people. There, there isn't really a great deal of, you know, uh, interdisciplinary work on those kind of areas. Um, and it's always seemed to me that what we talk about as being religion in, say, the Roman Empire or, or Egypt or, or Greece or something is much more like the kind of statecraft that we do. Exactly. So it's much more akin to, uh, you know, the, the American civil religion stuff that you were talking about, you know, that Robert, is it Robert Bella and people like that used to talk about? I think that goes, that approaches what I'm saying, but then it. But theoretically, it it's the other way around. That's right. And that's, that's right. what I find very interesting about that. Yeah, yeah, it, uh, good. I, so, I so rather than saying this modern statecraft is a bit like some kinds of religion, actually we can, we could flip that and we can say, well, we don't think of this as religion. So why are we imposing that idea on states from 2000 years ago? Why do we use the category religion to talk about, uh, the polis and the Olympic games and these kind of things in Rome? Is that is this part of this uh, you know this tactic of managing? I'm not sure it's part of the tactic of management, although it might be because it gives the vestigial government a lot of power and a lot of mystery mm-hmm. and a lot of emotional valence. And then when the dominant government relies on the vestigial government, harkens to it, harkens back to it, that it also gains that kind of power. This fundamentally, I think, changes that conversation. So we had in the, you know, in the, the sort of uh, sociology of religion in the classic kind of 1960s sociology yeah. of okay. religion, we had this idea of of quasi-religions or state religions or civil religion. But this actually changes that conversation because now we, we could actually say, well, if that's religion, then, you, you know, why, why do we have to call that religion? We could just not call it religion. We could, not, we could just call it statecraft. You could call it statecraft, exactly. I think it might be useful for the listener to, to have an, a couple of examples. And there, oh. was, there was a few interesting oh, I'd examples. Like to, I'd like to say one thing about that. I think the mystification of something in the past that we can say is religion and is eternal comes from, in some ways, world religions discourse. Right, yes. Uh, and uh, I think it works 
the way world religions as a category, although there's a lot of argument about when that starts exactly, some trace it back to mid-1600s, whatever, when uh, Christians discovered that there were other peoples in the world who actually didn't know anything about Christianity. And then various scholars have shown that when these new new to the Europeans, areas were discovered, the first, one of the first things that explorers say is that, the, oh, there's no religion here. These people are primitive. There's, there's nothing. And then after the explorers are there for a while, they begin to notice something that might be, oh, that could be a primitive form mm-hmm. of religion. And guess what it is? It's a beginning, and Christianity is the evolution, the apotheosis, the pinnacle of this development. So the fact that there is this thing we can identify maybe as a thing and call religion could be anything. Could be ancestor, uh, reverence. It could be rituals at tables. It could be anything. It could be ghosts, spirits, whatever. Gets named religion and then gets projected onto the past as a justification for the presence for the of contem- Christian yes. religion yes. now. So I think that some of that yes. is, is there, but as an inferior form or as another form. I think it might be useful for the listeners to have an example. I think it's quite a clear one. I know this isn't particularly your original work, but I think it's a very good case study. And that to be look, to look at uh, Judaism. Yes. Um, and the way that we see that moving, you know, through a, a number of different uh, ways of being interpreted until we end up with, uh, you know, Judaism as a... as a, Or as some people say, many Judaisms, mm-hmm. that it... Yeah, there are scholars who trace this uh, rather uh, specifically, is that you didn't have anything that could be called a religion. You just had people who lived in a given area. And as these people were conquered by a range of, by a succession of empires, if they, those who weren't killed, cohered or were allowed by some governments, you could look at um, the the, the way Cyrus, uh, dealt with, uh, with, the, we could call the Jew, Jewish people is that he allowed them to have certain, uh, rituals, certain places that uh, rebuild a temple, but a temple in the sense of, uh, like a city hall, mm-hmm. because temples mm-hmm. in the past weren't mm-hmm. separated with what we were called, would call worship now. They yeah. were, they were places of commercial exchange. There were law courts. There were lots of things yeah. going on. So by creating this separate, uh, space or, or this area, governments at that point were creating what gets now called religion. Sorry to interrupt the episode, but we just wanted to let you know to remind you about our Patreon link. Uh, The Religious Studies Project has always been free since its inception, uh, but we know that there's a great problem in academia with uh, people not being paid for the work that they're expected to do, particularly early career scholars. And we at the RSP want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So you can help if you can spare even one pound a month um, by going to patreon.com slash Project RS and subscribing. We know that these podcasts are very useful for people who are teaching and people on their learning. So if you can help, um, 
either by subscribing there or by making a one-off donation using the PayPal button on our website. It would be greatly appreciated and will help us keep bringing you this podcast for free and fight against exploitation in academia. But now, back to the episode. There were also a lot to do with food practices. Again, this is another example of reading religion into the past. So we we go, oh, they were involved in sacrifices or, you know, ritual preparations of meat. But the the idea that these are are religious practices is, again, something that we... Something that develops later. That we we, we read 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 into into the past. past, But we can think, well, it's just... It's just the the reason that, you know, Scottish people like to eat white bread and would go to a shop that sells the only white bread from Scotland when they when they go to live in Canada or something That's like that. That's right. You and know. if you made, uh, at certain points, you could make the Scots into a religion. It could be that kind of category. So whatever the Jewish people did became a cohered as Judaism. As uh, I was speaking last night about how there's, for, it's true in the case of Jewish people that you have a confusion. Is this a religion? Is this an ethnicity? Is this a nation? Is this is all together? Is it a culture? And I think that underlies actually all uh, polities that take on that category, that there's a lot of ambiguity there, that belief is, uh, is maybe one factor and mm. not a very important factor at all. And, and um, there are quite strong arguments that, you know, um, Judaism, the idea of, of a religion, is quite a late development, and they were seen historically much more often as a race than than they were as a religion. Which is another problematic. Which is a whole other thing, right, yeah, can of worms. Exactly. But the the point is that these there's the you know different uh, categories. All which... coming from the idea that to be a Christian you have to believe something. So gradually, I see a change mm. in uh, in Jewish people. Many Jews now think that you have to believe something to be really Jewish. You should never have to believe anything. You uh, were born of a Jewish mother or you're part of the community that made you Jewish. Well, then it's belief. That's belief in a very Christian sense exactly. of, of a, a credo, you know, a exactly. stated belief. This is what I believe. Yeah. I know it doesn't make sense to everyone, but I'm committed yeah. to it is, in some way. Yeah. So that you have to worry if you stop believing that, do you fall out of your... Christianness in some way, and Jews never had to worry about that. Um, you also made a, a really good point. It was quite quick in the presentation about the, the way that this, uh, in terms of like Islamist and uh, and terms like this, where people seem to be reluctant to use the term uh, religion. Well, religion. There, the key factor there is that when a group um, in contemporary times does something violent martial violence or uh, police violence particularly that isn't authorized by the state, then the title of religion becomes problematic because the key thing for creating the vestigial government is that it will not have any kind of forms of violence that could challenge the state. So uh, Max Weber said that a long time ago, not about the category of religion, but that legalized violence is the one thing that the state always holds on to for mm. itself. So it's the one thing that isn't generally franchised out to religious groups. Of course, in uh, when we, we get to the sphere of sex and gender, mm. those are the kinds of jurisdictions that are sometimes ceded by the dominant state to the vestigial one. And 
you would have family courts that are authorized by the state in some countries, uh, family courts run by quote unquote religious authorities who would be able to decide. And why, and why is that different? Why say, for instance, circumcision practices? Um, why does, why is that form of violence allowable and not others? For some reason, I think it's, it's a vestige of male authority over women that the, that both the state and the, the dominant state and the vestigial one claim, mm. but somehow the state is more willing to give that jurisdiction, which I suppose was not seen as all that important, over to, uh, vestigial authorities. Perhaps it's a, it's a situation where it benefits the state, but it slightly clashes with stated aims. So by sort of allowing, we, we'll just turn a blind eye to these, uh, you know, religions, vestigial states doing it suits us in the long run because it restates sort of male, you know, patriarchy. Male dominance and supports male dominance. It's another point I was making that the male dominance of the vestigial state, which is generally always the case, it's always male, partially because it's harkening back to something in the past, which was, well, in recorded history, seems to be male governance all of the time. I, I think you're right. It reinforces mm. male dominance. Uh, but it's it's quite frightening because women and children become subjects of two governments, the dominant one and the vestigial one. And and male children to some degree as male well. Male children to the same degree um, because we let, uh, in so many countries, instance, circumcision yeah. and then some uh, oral suction uh, in mm-hmm, some mm-hmm. Uh, Jewish communities, um, female circumcision, other kinds of communities. It's yeah. a very contested practice, but there's a lot of argument that it should be allowed in some degree, in some way. We uh, allow that as a form of violence because it's supposedly religious violence. Yes. Or it's not seen as violence. And of course, we have so many cases where um, the religious nature of a practice or a belief or s- some sort of prejudice comes down it's to whether right. it is or not religious. Um, you know, uh, use of cannabis by Rastafarians. There was a recent case in Scotland where a guy who claimed he'd been uh, fired from his job for being a, a nationalist, he was campaigning as an SNP, and it was seen to clash with his government job. In the preliminary ruling, the judge said, well, this is a sincere and worked out belief system about the world. So it's it, we, it's equivalent to a religion and therefore should be pre- protected, right? <laughs> So, and that's an example of how that category can be anything, that anything can get into it. Sometimes I, I talk about religion as a category in which nothing has ever been excluded. There, I can't get anyone to name one thing that hasn't been included in the category of religion. Impossible to exclude anything from it. And yet it's supposed to be something unique. Yeah, yeah. It's it's sui generis and unique yeah. to itself, but yeah, it's it, also everything. It's also everything. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. it's just humans. <laughs> it shows way, it yeah. shows the problematic nature of that category. Another another interesting example I think uh, which shows the sort of the the edges of this is how often new religions, new religious movements dream of governments. Exactly. They dream of alternative governments, but they're also the target of government ire and often violence. Um, well, governments are always a little bit edgy about the things they authorize as religions because they're worried about takeover because there's a sense of competition. 
somewhere. And new religious movements tend to imagine the uh, the government, the better government to come, could be something local that they'll enact in in a certain place in a certain way. But it could also be something in the future. It could be after death. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes major dominant religions or what we call world religions also imagine things like that. Or the government will be on another planet, or it will be after an apocalypse. Uh, but it will be better whatever it is, mm-hmm. and it will be something like what already happened um, a while ago. I mean, I must, In that sense of being once in future. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm particularly thinking of the kind of, the stuff that Crawford Gribben was talking about yesterday of the, you know, the American redoubt where uh, these conservative right-wing traditionalists essentially are um, attempting to create little states within states where there we go. where there we patriarchal go. theocracy uh, can continue within because they're worried now about women getting some kind of power in some kinds of dominant and states. atheists yeah, and, and non-white people and right. homosexuals and everything trans else. people everything yeah, yeah. yeah and that that is clearly harking back to to you know a, a a previous kind of or an imagined of a, previous, an imagined state, previous. Uh, often an imagined previous make America great again is well yeah like that kind again of slogan. you know uh, yeah exactly which, when which <laughs> one are you talking about the McCarthy era <laughs> World War Two I mean what is it Civil War <laughs> yeah, the violence aspect of it I think it is particularly interesting and we were we were riffing last night about you know the idea of um oh, my my colleague Chris Cotter was talking about how. Um, you know, a, a child can be raised in a state and told that he's going to, you know, he's working for Queen Country and then signs up and goes off to another country and kills people. And because this is for the state, this is a, you know, the violence is, um, and, and, and you'd, you'd made this point about the violence being the thing that, that states, um, dominant states keep to themselves. The one thing they keep to themselves. Now you have, um, you, there was another line in the in the keynote which I want you to unpick a bit for me, and you know it's religion, the category religion as an alternative to genocide. Um, I was suggesting taking from Deuteronomy twenty verses sixteen through eighteen, in which the Lord God commands a, a complete eradication of every living thing, people, livestock, everything in uh, an area that is being given as an inheritance to mm. a population. And I was thinking that if the category of religion had been invented, this is hypothetical very much, almost like a game, to imagine that this could have been an alternative for that Lord your God, that dominant tyrant, so that he wouldn't have to kill everybody there. He could create a religion in which all forms of violence would be forbidden to that group, mm-hmm. and perhaps the group could endure. So I was, I was thinking of it as, which I think it, it, it has functioned that way, as an alternative to genocide. Cyrus, for example, didn't eliminate the Jews who were in his uh, area of jurisdiction. He allowed them a, a space, a bounded space. Uh, that's a two-edged sword in a way, because by creating a special group with 
some kinds of status, uh, sometimes that group can also then be targeted for genocide mm-hmm. uh, later on, mm-hmm. uh, the way uh, Jews have been, the way uh, many minorities have. So it's a double-edged uh, thing. It's yeah. the creation of a polity with a certain kind of regulatory apparatus internal to that polity that can also make it a target. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd like to wrap up then with, uh, we, any of us who are working in the critical religion, uh, paradigm, you know, broadly, uh, broadly stated will eventually, uh, be angrily demanded of us what the practical application of what we're doing is. And, um, how does it matter to real people? There are some quite clear practical examples here, and, and you mentioned um, the way the journalistic covering of the abortion debate, for instance. Right. In uh, Ireland, I thought that that was an example, at least the uh, newspapers I read. I was collecting articles from the New York Times and the Washington Post, the Guardian, about the abortion referendum in Ireland, the recent one. And what was done in most of those articles is that the Catholic Church was spoken about, not religion as a general category. Sometimes it was mentioned, but it was clear that this is a specific institution with specific ideologies. Someone mentioned last night that evangelical Christians were also involved, but then there's a specificity about what who exactly is advocating what and for what purpose and who exactly wins and loses in these uh, various uh, debates. And I think that's a an important um, demystification of issues. Uh, so I, mm-hmm. I would urge scholars in religious studies to be as specific as possible, to name the groups as specifically as you can. Are you talking about Jews? Are you talking about Muslims? Are you talking about Christians? Maybe which kind of Christians? Buddhists? Not this blanket mm-hmm. category. That's already a step forward. I also think that a practical application, and this is, I think, where my part is in the in pushing the project uh, forward is to demystify the category of religion so that governments can't use it to fudge so much that it doesn't get to be such a vague category that uh, anything can be claimed as a right within it and that restrictions can't be put on it and that special male privilege can't be so easily granted. These vestigial governments have just as much contingency, just as much uh, conflict within polities as any other kinds of government. And so often uh, they're tended to be seen as monolithic, as homogeneous, and the men who claim to represent them are given a lot of power. So because religion as a category is put into constitutions, it's put into law, I think it's a, and because no one knows what it is, courts don't know how to interpret it in in a kind of consistent manner, I think that it's particularly ripe for deconstruction. And I think that some very interesting uh, clarity can be put to these very, these debates. That would be an example of one of the practical applications. You've brought a lot of clarity uh, to the conversation here, I think. I think people are going to be very uh, intrigued to to read uh, more of your work. But unfortunately, I have the male privilege today of ending <laughs> the interview. Um, but I just want to say thanks so much for joining us. And thank you, David. Thank you. And my thanks to Naomi for taking the time to record that interview with me. Um, as I said last week, we had been looking forward to interviewing Naomi 
for quite some time since we were in Bonn. Yes. And got to spend some time with her. She's uh she's both a lot of fun and um utterly fearless, something I like in scholars. Um you know, our own Jonathan Tuckett has a has a little bit of that. Um but uh yeah. That was a real pleasure. And she did the BASR and ISASR proud uh, with her keynotes and now hopefully a bit of that's been uh, preserved in perpetuity on the podcast and we're hopeful that there's going to be a journal article coming out of it as well uh, for um, Jabasser. Um, that's just a bit of pressure for you there, Naomi. Um, I'm sure Suzanne will appreciate me uh, putting that into the podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, on Thursday, come back for a response from uh, Mark Meehand. And uh, what do we have coming up next week, Chris? Well, next week, um, I was speaking to Atko Remmel, um, who has been, uh, I guess I met him for the first time in 2014. Um, in Frankfurt, um, we've crossed paths quite a few times since then. And every time I met up with them, we're saying, Oh, need to get you on the podcast, need to get you on the podcast. So I'm really glad that we managed it this time. Um, it's, it's a sort of broad interview about the study of, um, religion and also the study of national identity in an Estonian context. So we've had a few of these interviews, um, looking at specific contexts. I know we had, um, Lithuania, we've had Peru and we've had things on the BASR, we've had things on Nasser and whatnot. So it's good to have these snapshots. Um, but Estonia is a particularly interesting context, uh, being sort of post-Soviet, very high levels of, um, apparent irreligiosity and atheism and also that being quite tied up with the national narrative but also Tartu in Estonia is where the EASR is this year so we also talk a little bit about um, what um, the Estonian Association for the Study of Religion might be bringing to the table for that conference uh, so it was fitting that we recorded this at the 2018 EASR in Bern looking forward so 2019 EASR in Tartu. Indeed, and of course the RSP will be in Tartu at the EASR. Um, thanks to a bursary from the EASR. Absolutely. Um, so big thanks to all of our sponsors, including the EASR, the BASR, the NAASR, the IAHR and the AASR. Yeah. Try saying that quickly three times. We should just add all those letters into one big acronym. <laughs> the N A A B A S A A R. Well, there's a lot of A's and R's in there. Know, so, know, and ra 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 boom. <laughs> <laughs> the coffee is clearly starting to kick in. Um, we hope you're, you know, if you're listening to this in the morning, enjoying your coffee, stop wasting time on the internet. Go and do some work. But also, uh, you know, let's make 2019 the year that the RSP, you know, really becomes a community. Um, mm. we, we've always been encouraging people to, to comment, to retweet, to, to post on the website, to post on the social media feeds, to, to riff on the podcast, to write their own responses, write something on your blog, write into us, publish with us, um, excerpt bits from the audio and put them into your own podcast. I don't know. Let's make this the conversation, um, that I think a lot of you listeners have been a bit shy about. So let's make 2019 that year. Thanks for listening. 
The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The RSP is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SCO 47750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and our managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Jonathan Tuckett and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford and sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals.